What we do here is go back, 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 back. Hello and welcome to this podcast is delicious. I'm Ali Hassan. That I'm Marco guy over Timpano. there is Marco Timpano. Sometimes we talk over each other. Sometimes we harmonize. We have a pretty darn good episode lined up for you today. We've been talking about this for the last few weeks. Um, multi-hyphenate, multi-hyphenate. Our guest has uh, a bunch of things going and everything he does, he does a lot of all of it. Uh, only one book though. But there will oh, be more. I have no doubt about that. I, I um, a, how many how many books does it take, Ali, to impress you? Because this know, one uh, this one book, you know, it really <laughs> it had my eyes bugging out. I was really like digging it. Um, our guest, we're not good at introducing people, Marco. We need to work on that. Our guest oh. is Trevor Louis, and uh, by the way. Uh, Marco goes in the Italian pronunciation, Louis, and I I see L-U-I and I say Louis because of my uh, French background coming from Montreal. How do you pronounce it, Trevor? It's Louis, but if you grew up in northern Rexdale like I did with lots of Italians, it's uh, Louis. Louis, that's right. Simo Liu has probably ruined things for you, right? By by taking the LIU to the main stage. It's funny because most of my life I was able to sign a check LIU and no one knew the difference. Right. Um, he's stolen a little <laughs> bit of my thunder, but you know, there's there's enough for two Marvel characters. There's enough for both of you guys. I'm sure there is. Trevor, it's amazing to have you here. We'll tell our guests, uh, we'll tell our, our, our listeners who you are as, as a guest. You are a restaurateur many, many times over. You are an author, which is... I, I was being facetious earlier. We we celebrated. It's a beautiful book. Uh, I got my hands on it uh, a few months ago. I got to, to to feel it and and see it in my in my presence because we met at something called Biblio Bash, which is a huge fundraiser for the Toronto Public Library here. And our friend, common friend, common friend with uh, Marco as well, Joshna Maharaj, introduced us and. Um, I was like, how do I tell this guy without sounding weird that I've been following him for over a year on uh, on Instagram? And you kind of took that uh, that opportunity away from me because you were like, I know you from somewhere. And I was like, oh, I wonder where I could, couldn't. And I just forgot who I was for a few minutes. And I was like, oh, I'm an actor. I do this. You're like, oh, my God. I watched Run the Burbs. I watched it yesterday. But I my accent was gone. My beard was a little bit, you know, shaved. Um, but it was nice to make that connection with you. And immediately I was like, well, we have to have you here. And that at Biblio Bash, you were promoting, um, should we say promoting, selling, showcasing your book, uh, Double Happiness. It was a night for, uh, Canadian authors to be quote unquote showcased. Right. Um, so every table had, a an author host, yours, yourself, you were one yourself. We were two tables across from each other. Uh, the one thing that you didn't mention when I noticed you, the reason why I didn't notice you right away was like, man, they really age you up on the show. You look so young and you're, you're, you're so young in person. So that was the finally having the connection because once you spoke, I'm like, man, I know that voice from somewhere. If I close my eyes, I'm pretty sure it's the grandfather was fishing something out of the toilet, you know? Yeah, <laughs> yep. that's exactly right. Yeah. I could, it's an interesting feeling to be talking to somebody and, the way they look at you is like, my voice is bothering them. 
I know that I'm bothering them just by speaking right now. So that's unfortunate. Uh, Marco is a big fan of the book, has it in his hands as well right now. I got to say welcome to this podcast is delicious, Trevor. Um, You know, I got the book here and it's called The Double Happiness Cookbook. 88 feel-good recipes and food stories. And uh, can I just jump into the book? Yeah, let's do it. All right. So here's the thing with, with this book. I A cookbook that starts with a playlist, you know, you've already got me. You've already got me. You're, 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 you're doing something that's different than the rest, and you're giving me the soundtrack to the food I'm about to, to discover. So tell me about that. Now, have you... Punched in Double Happiness Cookbook in Spotify yet? No, I was going to ask you that. I was going to say, is there a playlist that you have that I can follow when I'm cooking? Because I was like. So that entire playlist is actually curated on Spotify and it's public. So you can download it. And while you're cooking or reading, you can listen to the songs that, you know, allow me to reminisce my childhood growing up in Rexdale and Flummo and listening to classic hip hop. And that transcended through the years and. Some of the food, even like with Super Fresh Now on our Friday, Saturday night, it's literally the same playlist. Amazing. Yeah. I mean, to me, food is, Suba's, food is a vessel, a food is a vessel for everything else. And if right. you talk about restaurants or a dining room table, there's many little, you know, side stories or accoutrement that makes the entire experience. And music is a very big component for me, at least. Indeed. I mean, you go into a restaurant. You're going to have a great meal. A lot of people don't think about the atmosphere you create with the music. And that's just for the diner. But the atmosphere you create for the person who, you know, is cooking or is making drinks or whatnot. I think it all adds to sort of the recipe that you're about to bring forward. Yeah, there's there's a particular science to music, right? Yeah. And how it is very emotional. And, you know, there's days that I want to listen to Christopher Cross, but I'm not going to play that in the night market when we're... Right you know, dishing out fried chicken and it's a, it's a nighttime feel. So there is a very deliberate thought process behind how you choose your music when you dine. Indeed. The Christopher Cross is what Ali listens to when he's taking a bath, right, Ali? I mean, I could, I, I haven't, but it's not the worst idea you've ever had. I worked in uh, restaurants for, for, for a few years uh, and nothing compared to the, uh, the years you put in Trevor, but you know, even as a caterer, you're working so hard and you're sleeping so little and you're reaching deep down and music is like, it's your ally. You know what I mean? It's your, it's your, it's like a drug that helps you go to places. And we were just talking right before we started, uh, Trevor and I both have a common friend, Jojo Flores, a DJ, his brother, Tutti Flores. These are guys who I grew up with in the South shore of Montreal. That was a lot of the music, a lot of that, a lot of mashup stuff, a lot of like high energy stuff in our kitchens was, uh, I mean, we needed it. 100%. I mean, I, I can't think of a world without music, you know, whether it's birth, death, weddings, there's two things that usually take place in every earmark part of our life, food and music, right? Uh, whether you're going for a run or a walk or you're driving a car, it's amazing. You can see the level of emotion uh, in people when they're dining and they hear a classic Biggie track and they start mouthing the words to it. Yep. It brought them to a different place. And all of a sudden it's not just about the food. And I always say for, for me, the, the businesses that I do now around food is not just about the food. The food has always been the vessel for me. It's a storytelling. Yeah. 
Yeah, and you can see that in your book. I mean, food and music transcend language. And this book tells your story, but I felt a very personal connection because I feel like it was also telling my story. You say here, every meal we eat is a story in itself. And while we all have wonderful, rich, and textured narratives, we very seldom share them. And in this book, you do that. You share the stories behind uh, what go, the recipes. I think one of the things that we take most for granted are the times we spend around a dining room table because it's something that is a necessity for us. So we breakfast, lunch, dinner, snacks, or out at the bar and eating late. We don't take a moment to stitch together the stories that carve out of every meal. Um, I have a very poignant you know, discussion when I talk about my journey of writing my book. When I first got the book deal, to me, I didn't know much about the journey of writing the book other than I had committed to 88 recipes. And for me, it was a book full of recipes. But as I wrote the book and this slowly started to form itself into my family's journey of food in this country, every recipe emoted a different type of memory for me, right? If you look at the progression of the recipes and how they came about, like I own over 300 cookbooks. Um, I have never actually once taken any of the cookbooks to cook a dish out of it. I've bought every single one of them as a gateway to learn about that particular chef because it's a diary. It's a story about why they wrote that particular book. There's a story behind what dish they made and how they made it. And I didn't realize that until I started writing the book. And I learned a lot more about my family in that two-year period, which ended up, you know, finishing up around COVID. And as you know, the stigmatism of being Asian was that much more magnetized, uh, you know, you know, under a magnifying glass, right. that the book became such an important story and narrative for what we've been fighting the last couple of years. But what I realized is the fight that we've had the last couple of years is actually decades of trauma that we never acknowledged. And so when I talk about the story of recipes and food, those unspoken things mirror the trauma that immigrant children grew up with that we suppress for most of our lives. And now I look back at all the things that I grew up experiencing, but none of that was anywhere close to what my parents and grandparents experienced. Unspoken, untold, they just went ahead and did their jobs. Yeah. It's incredible. It's in, it's incredible because as a son of immigrants, you know, there's a lot of points in this book that that really sort of speak to me that I can feel in my body that's like, yeah, that's an experience that I had. I certainly feel that way about food, uh, et cetera. You know, you said you said that you have three over 300 cookbooks and you use those cookbooks as a way of co to connect with the chef or the person who wrote the 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 cookbook. I can see it in this book, this connection. One thing that I gathered from from your book is that you don't approach your career or your cooking from a sense of lack. And I notice it when you, and you have a chapter cooking with friends in your in your book uh, that spotlights nine different uh, people who have impacted your life, and I think that's really generous to to offer some of your book uh, to recipes from people you know. I think it's really important to acknowledge the journeys we've taken. Um, for anyone who knows me, I do not like when people call me chef because I'm not a classically trained chef. I worked corporate up until 2018. I was an executive. So I built kitchens. I hired chefs. 
I service people in hospitality from a corporate level. But I grew up a restaurant brat and a restaurant kid. And I fell back into the industry from the back end forward. And I just, you know, I, I've spent a lot of times in kitchens plying my trade and researching and trying to understand the things that I like and what people like. But it's really important for me to understand that that journey wasn't just by myself. Um, you know, the book really is all about my family and my friends. Those people in those particular recipes and those chapters um, were very important earmark moments in the development of myself, right? So they weren't, as you look, if, if you take a look at it, I think there's nine of them, only two are chefs. The rest are friends and family, mostly friends. Yeah. And, you know, I talk a little bit about it at the beginning of each recipe, but the story is much deeper than that. I really enjoyed uh, reading about you describing you sitting uh, in the back back seat, your your grandfather, cigarette, hand, you know, dangling out of the Pontiac Le Mans as you're going to like markets to pick up stuff. I thought that was interesting too, that, you know, it's, 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 it's a more common thing where sort of immigrants come and they do what they have to do, right? Your father, like this was the thing, this was the path. Um, I read, or maybe I heard you talking about your father had, had, had acting dreams yeah, and then sort of fell into Maybe it's because of your mom. I'm not trying to blame your mom here. Uh, she didn't deny us of a great acting talent, but but your father, I think, came to Toronto and then sort of diverted and did what he had to do. Worked as a server and all that. And then I think if you if I'm remembering it correctly, called for your grandfather, who was a trained chef in Hong Kong. Is that right? Yeah, my my father was in the entertainment industry in Hong Kong, and in the '60s, he was you know, as I would call him, a prom a drummer in one of the most prominent cover bands in Hong Kong. And he played with big Hong Kong pop stars before they became big pop stars. And on the side, he was an extra in many movies. So he was on the set with the guys like Bolo Leung that was in all of Bruce Lee's movies and stuff, better known as Chong Lee in Bloodsport, right? Yes. I still have this newspaper clipping from the Hong Kong English newspaper of my father doing this Kung Fu stance like this. And the headline is Sonny's going to Hollywood, but he never made it to Hollywood. Uh, I still haven't asked my father because the story goes that on the way to Hollywood, he stopped in Niagara Falls. And I don't know by way of geography, how Niagara Falls became on the way to Hollywood. But the story goes is his bass player from the band, Uncle John, as we call him, uh, was already in Toronto and caught wind that my father was in Niagara. And said, if you're in Niagara, you're only an hour and a half away. Come to Toronto. We can have dinner. Um, you can meet my new friend. She's really cool. My dad does it. Turns out that friend was my mother. And the rest is history, right? And then brought over my grandfather, my grandmother, and all his little brothers and rented uh, a floor of a house on Markham Street, just around the corner from Honest Ed's. Big, yeah, exactly, yeah. yeah. And, you know, when they say the world comes full circle, when we re when we opened on opening night, our grand opening party at Super Fresh, which is in the annex, it was a five minute walk from our original home. And the fact that we stopped traffic with drums and line dances in a way, never did I ever think about it because it wasn't planned that way. It was almost like an accidental tribute to my family because I was born at Toronto Western. My grandfather, who was 
the closest person I was with growing up, who was the chef in the restaurant, died on my 16th birthday in the exact same hospital. So almost everything came back full circle to that whole area between Kensington and the annex. Right. Nice. I also love this idea of um, your parents were sort of, uh, uh, I guess the right word is concerned. They were more concerned about the North American palate back then, right? So you're making those sweet and sour chicken balls and things like that that aren't, you know, classically Hong Kong Chinese meals. Yeah, when we take a look, when we take a look at the history of Chinese food in North America, we predate the mid-1800s yeah. before the gold rush. Uh, and from the gold rush, obviously, we moved over into the building of the railroads in both countries. The food outposts at first were built for the migrant workers because, number one, we weren't allowed to eat where the Westerners were, nor would the food they were serving be palatable for the Asians. So these outposts that were built in these mining towns and and uh, train building towns um, were for the migrant Chinese workers. And eventually, the Westerners wanted to try the food. And those outposts became little restaurants. But very much like many restaurants in small towns throughout North America, we sometimes struggle with trying to build a bridge for others to be able to accept our food from a palate perspective. So yes, North American cuisine from a Chinese perspective, which I believe should be categorized and given its own category of North American Chinese, like the sweet and sour chicken balls and the yep. beef of the world, that became a gateway. And not only did we do those dishes, but in the restaurant, we did things like banquet burger, fish and chips. And, you know, you see this in Greek restaurants as well, right? A lot of Greek diners growing up, it was souvlaki, hamburger, right? moussaka, cheeseburger. Yeah. And now you see that in a lot of um, Mediterranean restaurants. So you've got shawarma and then you've got souvlaki and then you've got fries and a burger. So I think it's a combination of two things. Entrepreneurial spirit, because if you got a kitchen, why not try to cook everything? And number two, let's use Western food as a gateway to introduce people to Chinese food. Oh, that's an interesting way to look at it. You know, for many of us who are searching for a, like sort of a more authentic food experience, I don't think we look at it that way. I don't think we think about the gateway. I think we think like... Uh, these guys have uh, sold out to the masses, you know, I, 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 my whole thing always like my, I don't know if you, you share this Trevor, but I always get like a, a feeling, a, a, an ill feeling in my stomach when I see someplace that says, you know, specializing in Szechuan, Vietnamese, Korean, and Canadian cuisine. And you're like, man, first of all, you guys need to check the word specialize. And that's, that's not, that's not what specialization is. But also my feeling is like, but what are you doing well? Is it just like jack of all trades, master of none? And I know, because I know this from my Indian restaurant experience, it's often generic Indian food being served, right? The same butter chicken and sog paneer. But if you go and you meet those chefs, they're often guys from Bangladesh or Sri Lanka. And if they made you the food that they eat themselves, you'd be like, man, this is a fantastic meal I'll remember for a long time. There's nothing generic about it. That's why staff meals at restaurants are the best meals. The best the meals. Best. They get to cook something of, of their liking and you're one-upping each other. Um, yeah. yeah. I look at the notion about restaurants that serve multiple cuisines. And, you know, part of it is, you know, I have a very strong stance on how Western society views ethnic food. And when I say ethnic food, the term ethnic food obviously has changed over the years. So if you were 
if you were Italian Canadian in the 40s and 50s, the Italians struggled mightily just as the Chinese did when they got here to be accepted because they weren't Anglo. And so if you take a look at what was Italian food that day, back then, it wasn't osobuco and it wasn't, you know, fleur de latte. It was pasta, right? Yep. It was very generic Italian food. And then we have this, you know, there's interesting story about Thai food and Japanese food. For many decades, if you talk to a restaurateur, the number two, one and two skews on their menu would be California roll and teriyaki chicken, which both aren't actually Japanese food. And if you ask the Japanese chef what he wants to sell, he wants to sell you authentic Japanese food. Sure. So even for an operator, it was economic gateway. So I'll take all the money I can make selling California rolls if they want. Eventually, I'm going to make enough money and maybe I can cook the food that people will want. Now we've seen a shift for the consumer who's more educated about the things that they want. But to the other story about what I feel about ethnic food from a Western society is today a lot of Western, uh, a lot of ethnic food still is what I call there's a level of racism within food because you can only charge so much for a certain thing because society says so. Right. right? So if you take a look at the progression of Italian food, you can now go to a fine Italian restaurant and a bolognese can be as much as 35 bucks. Yep. But I'm sure everyone at this table knows that a really good bolognese that you make on a Sunday, like a sugo, isn't 35 bucks. No, it's not. I, I When I see that on a menu, I get angry. When, yeah. you're, when you're doing that to me on a menu and I know how much that costs and you're charging me those kind of prices, I get really upset. Now, if you think about the flip side, right? Asian restaurants in Chinatown, you can only sell a bowl of noodles for maybe $11, $10. That's the most you can get. Uh. But no one asked the questions if whether or not the labor, the intensity, and the preparation of the ingredients is just as much, if not more. Like a good ramen stock or a fur stock takes three days and right. as many as 20 ingredients, right? But you go to a fur restaurant, and if it's more than $12.95, you're flipping out. So sometimes we're also our worst victims that – the Chinese community and the Asian community, and I see this at Super Fresh when we brought in our vendors, and I tell them, your pricing is too cheap. And they're like, no one will pay more. I said, okay, maybe in the Scarborough Strip Mall it's different, but downtown Toronto, we need to start to appreciate ourselves for what we do and attach a price that we feel good that we're worth. Yep. Tell me about, as we're talking about restaurants and you're sort of, you know, really illustrating the type of knowledge and experience you've had in this restaurant world. Tell me about these various restaurants that you, uh, that you run and manage and, and, and operate just so I, I think I'd, I'd love for our listeners to get a good idea for what your day is like and how precious your time is right now, which we're going to do our best not to take too much advantage of. Well, I mean, we're not impervious to uh, the pandemic. Uh, we lost uh, two businesses during the pandemic. I lost a laksa shop, which I was very proud of. I thought that we had the best Singaporean slash Malay style laksa in the city. Um, that didn't survive. Uh, but what birthed out of COVID was some new brands um, that have flourished and based on timing have lasted until now and are starting to build some momentum. So I launched a brand called Joybird uh, during last summer, of which this year I rebranded it to be Bowbird. Uh, it's another one of those aha moments of wanting to be more authentic and Asian. So taking food that was already Asian flavors, but was being viewed as more Western food, I changed it to Bowbird. And now we focus on bow sandwiches, 
my fried chicken, which is what we're known for. And a lot of uh, traditional cold side dishes you might find in Taiwan or northern China. We have two of those locations. We're looking at a potential third one. And then on top of that, we opened Super Fresh just a month ago. And Super Fresh is the country, I believe, the country's first fully immersive, all-day indoor night market-themed venue that provides seven different um, experiences of food from different countries of Asia. Uh, it has a bodega. Uh, it has a speakeasy and a secret bar uh, and mm. all kinds of other little secrets as well. Tell people what a night market is who don't know what that is and, and why it's so special that you have. They, they exist in the U.S. in different cities, not in Canada, as far as you know. Is that right? Traditional Asian night markets are what you would find in most major Asian cities. So if you were to say Taipei, um, Bangkok, Seoul, Hong Kong, um, Kuala Lumpur, um, even parts of India, Burma, there are night markets which just generally open after nine because the countries are very hot there. So they reserve these spaces for sundown where all the shops and vendors open up. And it's a mix of shopping and dining and like just live cooking. And it's just like, if you can just imagine if anyone's like, I, when I think about this, I, I think about all the night markets that I went to in, in Thailand and I just miss Thailand so much. But every country has their own little different one, right? And so what we wanted to do was, one, bring that experience here in a closed, controlled environment so that people maybe that are from those countries or have been to those countries have a sense of familiarity. Those that haven't can get a taste of what they can look forward to if they decide to travel to Asia. Brilliant. It's amazing. Brilliant. I know I, I think of uh, Lahore, Pakistan with my dad uh, walking through this uh, market and uh, I remember... The most amazing thing was how these guys can remember who ordered what. Yeah. You have 30 orders going and he's picking out the people in this mall. We don't line up well in Pakistan. We don't do lineups well. Just um it's just a bum rush, you know? Right. And he's picking out. And it's all look. I'm Pakistani. And I was like, most of these guys look like the same mustachioed man here. And he's picking them out. You owe this, you owe this, you owe this, making no mistake. And I mean, I just phenomenal. The, the well-oiled machine that exists in some of these markets is, is just fantastic. My dad was like, listen, I've come a long way to eat your food, brother. And the guy didn't even look like he was listening to him. I'm like, my dad, this is embarrassing. You're being ignored. Next order was for him, you know, gave him a little solid and said, brother, this is for you. I was like, wow, it's just, you know, the, the things you can find and experience in these markets are great. And I'm, it's damned exciting that you're, you're, you're working to recreate that here. Yeah. I mean, um, it was, I mean, it's multi-tiered, right? Like I said, um, the food was just a vessel. It was really a space for us to share the story. There's a, so much of our childhood built into this space. I kind of feel like when we sat down to talk about this last summer, it was a breathing moment. It, you know, it, it was like Angela Bassett and um, what's that movie? Waiting, waiting to, to exhale. exhale. Yeah. It was uh, Asian waiting to exhale. It nice. was this aha moment of saying that we do not want to do what we've been told to do we want to do something that we want to do by us, for us, and for the community. And so, like I said, you walk in, the food is probably the last thing you think about because we see people's body language when they walk in. We, we start these little memes of 
life experiences and lived experiences the second you walk through our sliding doors. And you see the body language and the phones pop out because every six feet is something you want to take a picture of because you're like, oh my God, it reminds me of my childhood. Oh my God, it reminds me of my grandma. And by the time you eat your food, you're already like, your senses are already all blown up. And that was, that's really what we wanted to try to achieve. It's amazing. And anyone coming to Toronto should check it out. I'll have some links in our show notes for them to check out. Uh, Trevor, you know, you mentioned earlier, you don't, um, you don't want to be called chef. You don't like that. It's amazing because Ali insists that I call him chef no matter what we're doing. Yeah. A uh, <laughs> chef just means uh, the guy in charge right. in uh, in French, le chef. So uh, that's basically what I'm going for there. What are you, Raekwon from Wu-Tang? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's exactly that's right. that's my life with Ali. Uh, you know, you have a series called Soulful Food Stories that people can check out. I'll, I'll put a link to that. And in one of your episodes... You mentioned that you're deathly addicted to eggs and you're an egg thug for life. I need to know more yes. about that because I'm a huge fan of eggs. All things eggs in any form, out of any animal, cooked any way, I will eat it. I love eggs. Now, my doctor this morning told me that my cholesterol is not good, so I have to cut back on it. But maybe I'll go from three eggs, two eggs for now. But I think, you know, number one, it's a versatile uh ingredient you can use it in cocktails you can use it in baking you can use it as a topping i mean you can use it as a dredge think about how versatile an egg is and how many things like there's people that are like you know freeze drying egg yolks and now grating it over salad like you know parmigiano right yeah you know the weekend i was testing a new dish with century egg which is a fermented duck egg that's you know, it's black and it's like gelatinous, glowy on the outside and deep black yolk. The umami on it is ridiculously delicious if you can get beyond what it looks like. But what's what's not to love about eggs? Seriously. I hear you, bud. Maybe you should switch to quail eggs. You know, you still get to eat your three, but it's a lot less egg. Maybe cut back on the cholesterol that way. You know, there is one thing about a quail egg that I don't like too much is, you know, when you have a boiled quail egg, it's extra yolky because the the white is very thin yeah. i like the ratio of white to yolk on a chicken egg right? yeah yeah i hear you i'm just i'm just trying to help you but i'm just here for your health you know I'm just trying to give you solutions um we are actually interested in from a health perspective if i were sorry if i were to die with a bucket of eggs in my hand i think i've gone the right way yeah he yeah. died I, he died doing what he loved juggling <laughs> eggs they'll say and then you, no, he was going to eat them, man. Um, from the perspective of, uh, of, I don't know if this is about health, uh, Trevor, but you have a lot of vegan options. You have a lot of vegan options. Is that uh, something to do with uh, your clientele? Is that something to do with the way the, how, how naturally adaptable the, the food is to, uh, to, to, to vegan options? I think the one thing that our industry prior to these last few years has not been good at is finding, not finding a way, but being more deliberate and understanding of being inclusive when it comes to dining, right? I know these days special meals are a little different because, you know, people have different days for different things now. But I also respect the fact when people take a little bit of time and say, if you make a little tweak, everyone can eat this dish. But you have to be able to accept the fact that you want to make that tweak. And I find that in our industry, particular chefs have been pretty stubborn in changing their ways to adapt. So, yes, it's a couple of things. One, 
when I was diagnosed as um, diabetic in 2017, I wanted to look at different ways of cooking certain things that I can still eat. But when you're diabetic and you change the way you cook and change the way you eat, that also means that that food is acceptable to other people's diets as well. So particularly if you were, uh, you know, had allergies to gluten and or, you know, you couldn't eat too much sugar. So I find experimenting on is it don't you find it fascinating if you eat something and it tastes amazing, but you didn't know what it was. And then someone told you, by the way, it's gluten free and vegan. You're like, whoa, really? And so when I eat out, I love to order vegetable dishes because I want to see how much effort has been put into Oh, yeah. Right? Do you remember sitting at a banquet table, you know, at a wedding or something, and the vegetarian got a pasta primavera with some carrots in it? Like, that chef gave up way before that vegetarian went in, right? Yeah. And and I always felt sorry for that person that they're eating literally tricolor fusilli with like a red sauce and two frozen carrots in it, right? We should do better. <laughs> we should do yeah. better. Yeah, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. We we mentioned or Ali was mentioning off the top of the show Marvel superheroes. You're like a culinary superhero, Trevor, I got to say. <laughs> and and that brings me to Quell. Sorry, I don't, Ali, I wasn't sure if you were No, 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 I'm good. I'm good. I was going to go on about vegetables for an hour. It's better that you cut me off. Yeah, yeah. I'm a big fan. So, Quell is an agency representing food and drink talent with a focus on broadening BIPOC work uh, and leadership for those individuals. On the Quell website, it says, let's disrupt the system by making meaningful and real change. What does this disruption look like for you? Or what do you want to see? What, what, how would you like to see that disruption happen? First off, this was a pandemic baby that was born out of two things, lived experience and frustration. And, you know, I know, Ali, we can probably talk about this when you, me and Andrew get together and I listen to you guys talk about representation in film. It's the same thing in the food service industry. You know, I grew up to a boardroom full of middle-aged white men and I grew up in kitchens to middle-aged European white men uh, barking orders to uh, kitchens that were generally filled with new Canadians who, for the most part, stayed in those positions for most of their lives. I also learned that equity in certain spaces when it comes to representation has not been what it should be, particularly as a representation of what our population looks like, right? We're over 50% visible minority or majority, as I would say. I think it's important in terms of the work that we do is we're trying to recreate space around the table when it comes to things. So we've grown now beyond food and beverage and we're now in the lifestyle and fitness space as well. That it's not about taking away, taking something away from someone. And I think that's really the most important thing. You know, there's this term about fragility and people really, their backs get up when we use the word fragility or when we use the words um, privilege. Privilege has nothing to do with money. Privilege is about having an opportunity to be part of something when others do not have the same opportunity, when it's merit-based. And so our job as an agency is to ensure that we find equal representation and equitable work for people in representation around the food, lifestyle, and health fitness space, whether it's in ad campaigns, whether it's in marketing campaigns, whether it's in strategy campaigns. And whether it's in what the majority of the work we're doing now is in consulting companies on a more strategic and sustainable diversity, equity, and inclusion 
strategy. So it's all, I mean, it, there's a lot to unwrap there and we're just really hitting the tip of the iceberg. You know, a lot of people think that what happened with Black Lives Matter and uh, the struggle with our indigenous peoples and anti-Asian hate over the last two years is just like we turn the switch on and things are fixed. Right. This shit's happening for a long time, generations upon generations upon generations. And, you know, I want to take this moment to say that the struggles that our First Nations peoples have experienced and the Black community experienced is far beyond what my community experienced. And without their voices, we actually wouldn't have the ability to do what we're doing right now. But there's a lot of work to be done still. And we're, we're, we're pecking away at it bit by bit by bit. And we see the changes there, which is a good sign. But we're, we're, we're a long road ahead. I do want to give a little bit of uh, additional context to Quell that I that I know about. We mentioned Joshana Maharaj off the top of the show. We Marco and I interviewed her. Terrific interview. Definitely recommend our our, our listeners go and, and check out that interview from um, from last year. That's right. We you know Joshana had told me because she is part of Quell uh, along with a, a number of other uh, BIPOC chefs and uh, food related you know celebrities. And, uh, and I know you said you're going outside lifestyle, you know, but she told me, she said, Ali, plain and simple, I'm getting paid what all the other people in this industry have been getting paid for decades. I'm finally getting the same pay. And she goes, it is shocking for me. And this is, this is very, this really uh, affected me in the moment. Cause I was like, you know, Joshina's in her, her late forties, Joshina, you know, I had dreams to be a chef on television, Trevor. And I saw her on this show called, I think it was called party dish and it was on the food network. Yep. And I'm at my house in Montreal with just nothing but dreams, only dreams, nothing else. I'm catering illegally out of my parents' garage. I have no credibility. And I see this Brown woman on this show called Party Dish. And they're making these meals for different catering events. And I was so proud of this complete stranger. Didn't even live in Toronto, never had met her. That was almost 20 years ago. And she has been in the food industry. She's a, a, a celebrated author. She's somebody people turn to for, for her wisdom and her guidance and her expertise. And she has not been getting paid equitably until now, until your agency. So in practical terms, I just wanted to let people know if they got lost in the words of all the sort of high-level description of what Quell does as part of the High Bell Group, it just gives people equal pay that, that, that exists. Like you said, it's not taking away from anybody else. The money's out there. It's just it hasn't been given to everybody. And so I, I commend you for that. Thank you, Ali. And, and for context, you know, Joshna could probably tell you the exact same story because you don't know what you don't know. And the fact of the matter is, is when an agency comes to you and says, oh, we're representing this brand and they make the coolest blenders. We'd love to be, we'd love for you to be part of the campaign. And as a chef of color who has not been asked to be part of something, the first thing you're like, oh my God, I'm wanted. So check, I think I'm going to do this because no one's asked me. Then the next thing is, okay, we want you to do this amazing campaign. We're going to give you a free blender and we're going to give you exposure. So what you don't know, you don't know. There are people out there just taking this and thinking that that's what their value is because no one's ever offered them anything before. Meanwhile, we know that program has value to it and there's money attached to it. And so 
part of the narrative and the story that we have to tell our talent when we first sign them on is, listen, we're going to tell you to say no to some of this stuff. Because when we go to the table and we don't feel that you're being represented equitably from a pay perspective, we're going to decline it. And there'll be more money down the road. But be known that there'll be moments where we'll have difficult discussions because we're going to say no to something. And some of them you know, may not agree at the beginning, but I think for the most part, those that have stuck through with us since day one, they've seen what we've been able to do with the shift and the change. Amazing. This is a discussion in our home all the time, all the time, you know, and especially when I tell my wife, I said no to something, you know, and, and she'll hear the amount, let's say it's a few thousand dollars. She'd be like, you said, you said no to that money. We need that money. And I'm like, no, 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 because I know they have quadruple the amount and they're just trying to get whatever they can for whatever they can. And I'm going to do that Christmas party. And the entire time, I'm going to be unhappy. Yeah. And that's not fair to myself. That's not also fair to the other people who I'm performing for. If there's other comedians, you don't want to come into a green room and have a negative attitude and be like, oh, this gig, I can't believe it. Look at Look at the spread they have for food. Look at this. They clearly had money. They just didn't run. I don't want to bring that energy. I don't like when other people do it. I'd rather be like, no, this is not for me. This is what my rate is. If you have it, you do. If not, no hard feelings. You move on. And at no point have I ever sat there the day after the gig saying, oh, should have taken the gig. It's never happened. Never happened. That's how I know I'm making the right decisions there. And, and this is some advice that I have for young, you know, creatives out there, whether you're a cook or a lifestyle or you're in film is don't undervalue who you are by accepting close to nothing because what we're, what we're doing is we're collectively bringing down the standard for ourselves. We need to be stronger about what we think the value of certain things are. Uh, we, listen, we get, um, we get inquiries every week for people to join us and we just from a bandwidth can't take people all the time. Mm. It has to be a right fit as well, but we always provide advice to people and we always say, if you have any questions about anything, reach out to us. I don't, so send you a response email to let you know that don't do that is not a big thing for me. So we need more leaders in our industry to guide our youth out there as well. But perfect example, Ali, you said it, you know, Josh and I, she is in her mid forties. She didn't join us at 25. So she went through her entire adult life being underrepresented and underpaid. Right. So just, just, just to say, Joshna, I'm not mentioning your age here on this podcast like the other two gentlemen on the podcast seem to want to say that. Uh, key is we're gentlemen. Yeah. The key, let's focus yeah. on the gentlemen. Fair, fair enough. Uh, Trevor, let me ask you this then. How can people listening who are managers, restaurateurs, help to make a level playing field out there? What's some advice you would give them? Because they're probably listening here and they're like, uh, you know, they might be listening in Texas or other parts of the world. And, and they're thinking like, how can I be someone who may, helps make a le level playing field? How can I be the change maker here? You know, one of my staff once told me that the fish stinks from the head to the tail, not the other way around. So the first thing you need to take a, take a look at is you need to look at your leadership and what your commitment on you know, your leadership level is, right? It's like when companies come to us for strategic consultation on helping them with equity and inclusion. And we tell them we need to take a look at your operation. And we look in the room and we see 10 people that look exactly the same. That is the first issue, is that what are you doing to change that fabric of the people around the table? And like I said, we don't want you to remove anyone from the table. 
Maybe you've had 10 seats all the time. Right. Set an 11th seat and let someone that needs a voice have that voice. The biggest thing, you know, we talked about, you talked about Simu in the beginning. Simu's emergence for the Asian community has nothing to do with him being a Marvel hero. That movie was a great movie, but I'm not a Marvel guy. I enjoyed watching it, but what I enjoyed more was the fact that when I was a kid, I couldn't look at the screen and see someone like Simu in that role and all the sub-characters also be Asian, right? So we see that in the kitchens as well. If you are a young black Canadian kid from Rexdale, from where I grew up, and you want to be a cook, but when you look around all the restaurants and read all the cookbooks and you don't see anyone that looks like you other than Marcus Samuelson, there's no representation there. So what is the motive and inspiration to be able to do something when you don't see someone that looks like you? So when I talk about someone like LeBron James, listen, I'm not a LeBron James guy, but I look at what LeBron did for community and his money and went back and opened the school for the kids to go to that school and see this guy make it as a basketball player and create a pathway. It's creating a vision for youth to see that, if I'm a young South Asian kid and I see Ali on Run the Burbs and I want to be a comedian, I see a pathway there. But if there is not that pathway, then the likelihood of those people succeeding and going down that road is slimmer and slimmer. Sure. I'll add that I think another great thing about LeBron is the fact that he is giving back because, you know, uh, you, there's no law, right? There's nothing obliging any of these guys to give back. There should there be should a law be. about his receding hairline, though. Listen, man, don't worry about that. Don't worry about hair. On this show, you're going to come here and talk about hairlines on this show? How dare you? Read the room, buddy. Read the room. <laughs> it's not It's not the hairline. It's the fact that he acts that he doesn't have one. So, you know, the headband gets bigger. The Has face he not earned close. the right? Oh, man. Has he not earned the right after everything he's done? He's a he's billionaire, so. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, he is a billionaire, but like, look, I don't hear about, you know, uh, Jeff Bezos, uh, Elon Musk doing these type of things and giving back to communities. Maybe they do. And I'm I'm wrong to say this, but um, I feel like, you know, uh, it's, it's, it's a guy with the heart in the right place. And, and not only is he helping kids, but I think that's also a good role model when you have it give back yeah. and provide and right. Cause a lot of people forget that too. It's about my big payday. What am I getting paid? I'm going to get paid, but giving and, back. And, I think the other thing, and, and the other thing I think that we need to acknowledge, and I know he gets a lot of hate for this is he is someone with a voice that's elevated. You know, he is arguably the best player of our generation. And I can argue that to our death, but he's mm -hmm. one of the greatest of all time. And he has not shunned away from using his voice to express his feelings about things. And that's really yeah. important, right? Is the fact that if you get to a certain level and people are listening, it's important to use that voice. Yeah. Sure. Uh, the, the problem, of course, is when people use their voice and they're kind of on the wrong side of history and you go, oh man, might've been better if you didn't weigh in on this yeah, one. But uh, LeBron, I feel is it doesn't qualify for that. I think he's great. I think he's on the right side of history and his heart, his heart's in the right yeah. place. But anyway, yeah. There's too many of the other, uh, as you were saying, Ali. Uh, Marco yeah. Tampanos, we call them. We call yeah. them Marco Tampanos. Guys on the wrong you know, side of history. Anytime he, can, anytime he can push me into this box that makes me look like an asshole, <laughs> Ali just opens that door and shoves me in. Uh, He's too calm for too long on this Well, show. listen, 
You know, I, I want to be respectful of your time, Trevor, but I cannot let you go. And I'm sure Ali has some follow-up questions too, but I, in your book, The Double Happiness Cookbook, you say that your mom taught you how to eat French onion soup the right way, which immediately made me think, oh man, I don't know what that means. Have I been eating it the wrong way? Can you share to me, share with us what that is, what your mom taught you? So, yeah, I'm going to tell you the real quick story about this because uh, I have a very soft spot for French onion soup. Anytime I go to a restaurant, it's on the menu. I will order it. Doesn't matter if it's good or bad. I will order it. Um, when I was really young, so this is getting back to probably I was five, six or seven. You know, um, we had very humble beginnings. Uh, we didn't have a lot of money, but my mother always taught me one thing. She's like, uh, money doesn't necessarily come with manners and etiquette. And so even the richest people sometimes don't have those things. And so I want to teach you these things. We may not have means, but once a year, we're going to go to a fancy restaurant and I'm going to teach you how to open a door for a woman, how to pull a chair. And I'm going to show you what cutlery is for what. And this is, these are things my mom taught me as a six, seven year old. So I do remember, I think I was six or seven. I put on my worst seer suit and she took me to Ed's Warehouse. And for anyone who knows King West back in the day, um, this is across from Roy Thompson Hall. That whole row is owned by the Mervishes. And back then it was restaurants. And it was Old Ed's Steakhouse, Old Ed's Chinese, yep. Old yep. Ed's Warehouse. And the warehouse was like the fancy white glove place. And so I remember the first time we went, we sat down. Me and my mom sat down for dinner. And my mom said, we should order you French onion soup. French onion soup comes out. I'm a six-year-old. I see gooey cheese on the top of the bowl. So as a kid, what do you do? I have no clue what French onion soup is. So I took the spoon that my mother taught me was for soup. And I proceeded just to dip my spoon as fast and as hard as I could into the cheese. And of course, it just went everywhere. And so that is not the proper way to eat French onion soup. Obviously, the proper way to eat French onion soup is to slowly pick away at the ends of the bowl. You get a knife and fork to break the cheese down. You get some bread and then you get into the consomme and away you go. But, you know, that taught me about etiquette, about it's not exactly what you think it is when you see it. And, and obviously I got my suit all dirty and I burned myself, but it taught me a lot about not just the soup, but, you know, that everything has a hidden surprise behind it. And the one connective tissue of the hidden surprise that I learned while I'm writing my book is that when my grandfather first landed in Toronto, before he cooked in my dad's restaurant, because my dad didn't have the restaurant yet, he was a bellman at the Sheridan Center, so my grandfather was looking for the job for a job, I found out that my, fa my grandfather was the prime rib cut man at Ed's Warehouse. And I had never known that. He was cutting the beef, wow. not speaking English, in the early 70s. And I didn't know that for over 40 years of my life. So there's a connective tissue that I didn't even know that my grandfather worked there where my mom took me and I had the French onion soup incident, blah, blah, blah. So. Unbelievable. <laughs> As you said, between these blocks and these blocks in the city of Toronto, you have this, the fiber of your family runs through. I'm going to ask you a last question. Uh, 
you are obviously a massive champion of this city, which has given you and your family so much, understandably, but also in your cookbook, right? There's ceviches and there's chorizo and there's Korean flavors. And so it feels also a little bit like a travel memoir. Uh, this is my final question for you. When you get a chance to travel again um, and take time off work, where is your, where's your destination? Is it someplace where food has no meaning? Is it like an all-inclusive resort or is it a place where you immerse yourself in the food, learn stuff, come back? How do you, how do you plan your next vacation? Well, we're actually, we have a vacation plan for the end of June. Um, we're going to Puerto Rico. First time I've been to Puerto Rico. It's not all-inclusive. Uh, I'm going to dive right into it. Um, is it my first destination? No, it's something that we wanted to do and it was intercontinental. Um, if I can travel for a long period of time, I want to go back to Asia. Uh, I feel I left my heart in Thailand uh, pre-COVID and that I have a lot of unfinished business in Vietnam, Laos, Cambodia, Singapore. Mm. The other thing that I really want to do, if there's one thing that I want to do, um, my parents are getting up there. Um, we had planned an entire family trip. So my parents, my daughter, my wife, my sister, my brother-in-law, my nephew, my niece, um, we wanted to do a trip back to Hong Kong and we wanted to show the entire family where my family was from. <clears throat> uh, and obviously COVID took that away from us. Uh, and we wanted to do two weeks in Hong Kong, two weeks in Japan and travel down to Osaka. That is the trip that I want to do within the next year. I don't, you know, I don't know, you know, my parents are getting older and I want to do this before they can't travel like that anymore. Not to say that they, they can't, but you know, as, as years go, go on, it, it gets tougher, right? So that's that's the one trip that I want to do. And I want I haven't been to Hong Kong since oh, it's been 40 years since I've been back to Hong Kong. Oh wow. The last time there I was 10, I'll be 50 next year. Uh, and obviously a lot's changed, uh, both <laughs> both both from a structure and from po politics as well. But I do want to give one more big kick at the can in Hong Kong for sure. Good luck with all of it, brother. I hope it, I mean, there's a lot of, I'm, from a logistics perspective, I'm already like, that's a lot of people who have to have free time and clear their schedules and all that, but I really hope it works out. It feels like it's something your family really wants to do, and I'm I'm sure you'll work hard to make it happen. You'll, Ali, you'll appreciate this, okay? This is this will be my parting thought. I remember when I was a kid in Hong Kong, uh, not understanding that Hong Kong was a British colony so that there would be a lot of expats from other British colonies in Hong Kong. There were a lot of uh, Sikh Punjabi men that were working in banks. <laughs> and of course, as a six-year-old, I didn't know what a Punjabi or, or a Sikh man was, right? But I remember the first time I walked into a bank and uh, a South Asian man, a Sikh man spoke to me in Cantonese. I lost my shit. Yeah. I was like, the voice that came out of his mouth for him to speak Cantonese to me was like, and of course, the connective tissue now is that my wife is Punjabi and seek. Oh, is that right? I didn't know that. So, you know, there's this thing where I want to close the circle. I want to go back with my wife and hopefully there's a Sikh Punjabi man working in some establishment that can speak Chinese to me. And I'd be like, yo, check it out, man. Full circle. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> you met, I mean, uh, who knows, you know, you saw he was a banker. He's in control of money. Subconsciously, you're like, I need to marry a woman who can take control of my money and uh, the whole thing. Who knows what we're affected by? Wow. That's great. Uh, Trevor, man, thank you so much for your time. Like it's, uh, 
it's crazy that we even got this time yeah, it's been, uh, given your schedule, but it's uh, it's wonderful. Thank you for being so generous with it. We really yeah, Trevor, that. Trevor, I can't recommend your book, The Double Happiness uh, Cookbook Enough by Trevor Louis, uh, and we appreciate having you on the podcast. Thanks for giving me the platform, and thanks for I love conversations like this. It's uh, it, it makes everything worthwhile, and it feels great to be able to share stories like this. So thank you so much for having me on, guys. Our pleasure, man. Trevor Louis, check out his book. If you're in Toronto, check out his uh, variety of restaurants. And uh, please do visit uh, highbellgroup.com. Is it, Trevor? Yeah, highbellgroup.com is our company. Yeah. Of course, you can visit us on quellnow.com. And if you're going to eat, come to Superfresh or Bowbird. Uh, they're both in the city. I'll have everything in the show notes. And don't forget to watch Soulful Food Stories as well. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So much to direct people to. We've given everyone a good weekend's worth of like the rabbit hole, (laughs) the Trevor Louis rabbit hole. Okay. Thanks so much. Have a great day. Uh, That is it for this podcast is delicious. I'm Ali Hassan. I'm Marco Timpano. Until we eat and drink again.